0: Hey, this is Tessa Velasquez, owner of Baked & Wired, a bake joint, and LaBetti in Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Soul of Life.
1: I am one of those people who was as ignorant as anybody today else. And when I started to go down this path, I started
0: craving information and I found there was no objective information. Today on The Soul of Life, I speak with Dr. Samoon Ahmed, author of Medical Marijuana, a Clinical Handbook, that provides up-to-date scientific guidance about how marijuana may be an appropriate treatment for some medical conditions, particularly in people who had anorexia,
1: or had uh, in HIV and AIDS, or for nausea treated with post chemotherapy,
0: chronic pain, or to support other treatments for complex or treatment-resistant forms of anxiety, like post-traumatic stress disorder. There's nothing as a one-shot medicine that we can give to people, and it sort of cures and treats people. Dr. Ahmed helps us understand the history of weed in the U.S. that stirs strong passions in people. People tend to look at it in a very tribal way. It's the road to drug addiction, and that's the end of it for you. Or it's a panacea. It's the best thing after sliced bread. The highly politicized black or white nature of conversations about marijuana have created a black hole when it comes to scientific research. For example, the endocannabinoid system, a complex biological cell signaling mechanism, was discovered only in the 1990s due to the classification of marijuana as a Schedule I drug, a drug that is thought to have no medical purposes. The clinicians and the researchers were so far removed from the knowledge base and the research of cannabis. Current research is still severely restricted to only two medically approved forms of THC, the psychoactive chemical in pot, and these forms of the drug are nothing like the smoked varieties, far more widely used in real life. We have been sitting for 80 years with these two, and we still don't know anything about it. In the United States, the non-medical use of cannabis is decriminalized in 16 states and legalized in another 14 states. Enthusiasts say pot helps them deal with life better, manage their anxiety, and helps them with sleep. But are we really ready for large-scale commercialization of marijuana? Dr. Ahmed says legalization should be scaled only to the extent that widespread education, harm reduction, and intoxication limits are clearly established. Cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. You know, people go through withdrawals.
1: Why is there a persistent belief in our culture that marijuana is harmless? On the physical level, irritability, agitation, lack of sleep, increased appetite, insomnia, uh, all of those things can happen to people and can last one or two weeks.
0: We go over the facts about withdrawal and the rebound effects of weed on anxiety and depression. People need to learn and not think of it as that there is no withdrawal, so it's all in my head. And so I can, I can just keep using it every day, no matter what. Dr. Ahmed thinks that doctors, because of managed care, have lost their identity as teachers. We especially focus today on our shared fears that parents and educators aren't fully informed about how damaging marijuana seems to be to the developing brain. From birth to age 25, that's how long it takes for
1: the brain to fully develop. Prior to age of 25, 25 is sort of the cutoff mark that we think of, uh, until which point, in my opinion, honestly, stay away from it. Don't use it. Is it true that your IQ drops from regular marijuana use? There is data that suggests, yes, there is IQ points that are, even if you stop,
0: you don't lose, but you don't regain. And we talk about marijuana-induced chronic psychosis, something that few regular users want to hear. In fact, there is
1: some data to suggest 25%, which is a huge percentage
0: of people, will end up developing a chronic psychotic condition. He describes how his firsthand experience witnessing this tragedy falls on deaf ears with many parents, until sometimes it's too late. You may never be able to have the same level of functioning as the peer. It's a heartbreaking thing. Why is today's weed not at all the same weed that you smoked in 1975? Go slow and go low. And finally, why is THC intoxication so different and difficult to self-assess than alcohol? And how does this affect how states are enacting sober driving tests? Six to eight hours after using it, you shouldn't be driving. Welcome to the Soul of Life. I'm Keith Miller. This is season two, episode ten. Reefer Madness, sorting fact from fiction in the clinical uses of marijuana. That's gonna take you straight to the moon. Bring
1: out the fire, bring on all the lightning. Cause I'm looking for a hero, look inside the mirror. I find one oh. Too hard. Pick it up, dust it off. When I fall down 11, I get up 12, don't need nobody else. Yeah,
0: I can save myself. I'm Keith Miller, and my podcast, The Soul of Life, is here to help you remember who you really are. I'll bring together people who have gotten off their treadmills. I'll have conversations with athletes, musicians, doctors, scientists, healers, and entrepreneurs to discuss the fascinating edges of our knowledge in neurobiology psychology, and physics. This is The Soul of Life. Please take the time now to subscribe to The Soul of Life wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up, or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two. Dr. Samoon Ahmed is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and serves as unit chief of Bellevue Medical Center's inpatient unit. Practicing physician for over 25 years, Dr. Ahmed specializes in treating patients with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD, stuttering, and weight management issues. His 2020 book with Dr. Kevin Hill is titled Medical Marijuana, a Clinical Handbook. It summarizes what is currently known about the positive and negative health impacts of cannabis. It provides detailed pharmacological profiles of both THC and CBD, discusses a range of clinical applications, and gives us insight into the history of cannabis in the current regulatory environment in the U.S. I'll refer listeners to another book on this important subject by Dr. Ahmed's co-author, Dr. Kevin Hill, in his 2015 book titled Marijuana, The Unbiased Truth About the World's Most Popular Weed. Today, Dr. Ahmed and I will cover a lot of ground talking about many facets of this extraordinary plant that couldn't be more timely, with some Wall Street experts closely watching what could be a massive infusion of big cash into this industry as federal legalization is being discussed. We'll talk about science, separating fact from fiction, and particularly around the myth of harmlessness for adolescents, the attitudes in our culture, and especially focus on educating about marijuana addiction and its treatment. Dr. Samoon Ahmed, nice to speak with you today. How are you?
1: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation.
0: You're welcome. I'm excited to speak to you about this subject. It's been one that has been on my mind for quite a number of years as a clinician, seeing an uptick increasingly. of uh, People walking through my doors, I treat a lot of anxiety and depression in, in, our, in our psychotherapy private practice. And uh, you know, people often mention just sort of offhand. Uh, they usually don't disclose it as a problem. They're not coming in very often, in my experience, saying, I need help with this and that's something I want to get to today. Um, usually they just mention it uh, maybe in the fourth or fifth session. Oh, by the way, I you know smoke a joint before going to bed every day or several times a day. It's just usually not even thought of as something that they might need to mention or should mention to a mental health clinician. So I wanted to speak with you about uh, your very important work with Dr. Hill and others on the subject of finding science and separating the facts from fiction. So I'd like to ask you kind of off the bat here to start out uh, to speak about how marijuana affects us. I think everyone knows that it affects mood, right? It makes Mm -hmm. us mellow if somebody's using it, sort of chilled out and can get you high with euphoria. Um, How does marijuana affect the brain and body?
1: THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol, has long known uh, to provide users with a sort of a state of relaxation, that chill out feeling that uh, uh, as pointed out. Uh, and consequently, researchers over a period of time started looking into it that the state of relaxation, so to speak, where would it apply? And one of the best places to see that state of relaxation where you would like it to uh, be is in post-traumatic stress disorder, because there's such a heightened state of anxiety, agitation, and fear and threat.
0: To, to just illustrate this, um, for the average person. So if they're going through life feeling or just going through their day feeling like they don't have breaks, like I, this is what a lot of people come to us saying. Right. Like it's all a big blur. I've got kids. I've got my, my spouse. I've got this boss that is, that is relentless. I've got news that's relentless 24 seven. Um, and I don't feel like I have any room for myself. Um, and maybe we, we determine they're suffering from depression, but what they're saying to us is they don't have the brakes. And you're saying THC, the active ingredient uh, in, cannab- uh, in in marijuana, actually gives people this experience of activating their parasympathetic nervous system. Same thing that we do in meditation, by the way, but this is immediate. It goes, how how quickly does this happen? Somebody smokes a joint. Within minutes, absolutely.
1: But remember, I think it's very important to make a distinction that the conditions that we are really discussing, for example, post-traumatic stress disorder, as such, there is nothing as a one-shot medicine that we can give to people, and it sort of cures and treats people. So when we when we discuss treatments that are with with cannabinoids, uh, in particular, we need to make it very clear that number one, we need to look at people's predisposition, what other factors apply, what other standard approved treatments they have ha- had before where they have failed, what are, if they cannot use those treatments, what are some of the uh, reasons for that? And then justify that we are using this particular, because you need to weigh the those risks and benefits in terms of this, because PTSD in itself carries a high risk of substance use in people. And you need to take that into account when you
0: are using this. Yeah. And that's something I want to get to too, in a little bit down the road, um, so putting aside for a moment the PTSD uh, question which is a fascinating one I refer listeners to an earlier episode I did with Dr. Michael Mithofer who's the lead FDA investigator on the uh, the first ever uh, FDA approved trials of MDMA uh, otherwise known as ecstasy for a similar use case for uh, PTSD and you know in those studies it's the same thing Dr. Mudd. it's that These are people who are treatment resistant, uh, or, you know, it is not first line. And so I want to make this clear, you know, at least where I come in as a clinician, and I imagine you, I'm hearing you say this too. This is not first line treatment. However, um, there are plenty of people who take it into their own hands. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit. Let's, let's touch on, um, the the serpentine attitudes of of cannabis use in the US maybe going back to what the 30s i mean that before yeah. before then it was really off the radar i think yeah. um maybe more traditionally considered a native um or or spiritual uh, in line with spiritual traditions uh, for for centuries uh with many other types of hallucinogen uh, this is not a hallucinogen right. but with other uh, mm-hmm. drugs such as hallucinogens mm-hmm. um tell me about the 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 shift in attitudes over the years you know, it's the most, to me at least, it's one of the most interesting areas.
1: I, I think looking at from a historical perspective, and you're absolutely right, that goes back to millennia in terms of its use. You know, from the Indian continent to the Himalayan, to the European steppa, and how it's been used over the years and the differentiation of the indica, the sativa, and, and in religious ceremonies and in other cultural aspects and recreational use. And you can pick any culture. And you can see the medicinal uses that go across the boat. Goes way back, Uh, yeah. There's no question about it. Going back to what you are describing, historical perspective and how it's been demonized, in the middle of the last century, cannabis was seen primarily as a recreational drug that was commonly used by the working class, the blacks and the immigrant communities. And immigrant particularly is important to highlight because after the Mexican Revolution, that was lasted a decade or so. A lot of these people sort of, because they lost their land, they lost everything, they sort of came down into the South. Uh, and when they brought, they brought marijuana with them, which was a sort of a different Plant in some ways than what was considered the cannabis in the rest of the world at that time, because this was dried flower and leaf. Versus when you are looking at the uh, in 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 the Indian continent, you're really looking at the fluorescence, which is the trichomes, which is the rich resin that is very different than the dried flower and leaves of marijuana, which is sort of a less intoxicant. So they brought it with them, and as they brought they introduced it. But I don't want to sort of. Put a blame game there because we also know that the Europeans who were exposed during the colonizing period brought it with them to the United States. So Mm -hmm. it's, it would be improper to say that Mexico was the private, the driving force behind it. It was Americans were already exposed to this by the Europeans as well at at that time. And from there, it segued into jazz culture and the biggest names in jazz, in fact, they were held, they were arrested. There was a, a, all kinds of things that happened to these people. And then it sort of became a part of the counterculture movement of the 1950s and 1960s and the so-called anti-war movement at that time. Uh, so, and, and what happened during with the politics at that time, during, and I, I just want to go back to the 1920s, which is the famous 1927 Marijuana Tax Act. And this was the time, you know, which was just after the, during the time of the alcohol prohibition we are talking about, and people were just sort of thinking about it. Cannabis started to be associated in the same way where, you know, people started to think and a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment as if they thought that the marijuana was a different plant than the cannabis plant, which was... All that's how media portrayed it, and it it, was a it, you know, absolutely, it was complete fiction. And there were a lot of authorities in very important places in the politics who played a role in this as well uh, at, at that time. Um, right, spreading,
0: and, the, sort of, starting this propaganda campaign against, and and describing it as leading to psychosis, and then of course you have the the correct. role of this was it a Hollywood movie or play? But Reefer Madness, which one is, of the
1: m- main people were Harry and Slinger from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Initially, he wasn't that much against, but then he started. And what they did was they started throwing these all these kinds of stories that they would make as to as if you're absolutely right in in that in those stories and the muckrakers were actually exposing many of these things that they were doing Uh that all of these tinctures so-called made they had everything in them and then they were blaming marijuana for lots mm-hmm. of these things and people were like killing people and sort of all kinds of uh, uh, tragedies were happening because of cannabis users. If these people were just going out and hurting and killing people, all of this and people became sort of like, okay, we need to do something about it. So the marijuana tax act was established in 1927. And the only opponent at that time uh, was one of the physicians of um, uh, AMA who very clearly stated at that time. And it is so remarkable. He said, he said, even though we are not using it today as we should, we should keep it the way it is for the future generations to do research and use, it, use its full therapeutic potential. But right, he was, Instead, of, he was instead a, of
0: banning it completely and then creating a, a black market.
1: You know, they just didn't ban it initially. They put so much tax on it that it became impractical to actually prescribe it at that time. Literally. Um, uh, and, this. and so it continued its, Path down where the media continued to play that role. And by the 50s and 60s, and then when the substance uh, uh CSA, which is the Controlled Substance Act of the anti-drug war by Nixon uh started to come, the clinicians and the researchers were so far removed from the knowledge base and the research of cannabis that nobody really had enough to stand and, on their feet to sort of question that what was happening at at, at that time. So it sort of was just put a damp on on the research at that at that at that time. And then what happened after that was that dronabinol, which is a synthetic analog of THC, uh that was approved by the FDA in the 1980s, in fact. So there was this period, and then people started to sort of see that there was some utility and particularly in people who had anorexia or had uh, in HIV and AIDS or for nausea treated with post-chemotherapy. And they were, you know, and, but the problem was people really didn't like the dronabinol because it didn't make them feel good. So people started petitioning the government for smokable cannabis. And this was instigated by one of the famous cases by Robert Randall, who had won the right to actually receive cannabis from the government, while what is called as the compassionate investigational new drug uh, program at that time, and other people said, you know what, we we want the same thing, and so at that was the point where the movement started to bifurcate in its views about cannabis, and people started to sort of understood that yes, it has a recreational use, but it has medicinal properties as well, and as more people started to use it with nausea or symptoms with uh, multiple sclerosis or PTSD or all of these things, the belief was there is no such thing as a responsible use or that is solely a recreational drug. It sort of faded that there is a gray area. We shouldn't look at the this plant as a black and white plant or, or on that way because people thought that it's. In fact, the media had made it. Look like it was as bad as heroin use, for example. If, yeah, if, absolutely. if
0: you've used it, you're probably a criminal or you're probably one of these people who are looking for trouble or you're, it's going to lead to hard drugs. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. Marijuana is not harmless. It's not without its risk. Any drug is not without its risk. And I think I would imagine as a scientist, um, interested in all purposes of any drug that you just consider this another drug. However, um, I think you're, you're pointing to this, this facet of the, Overreactions in the media, and of course in regulatory action, and then of course then a counter reaction. You talk about the subculture, the the '60s, uh, Timothy Leary, uh, encouraging people to get high and tune out and and drop out or something like that, um, leading to this again more overcorrection. So this polarization leading to a kind of a, a, a an obfuscation, a a lack of clarity that there is a middle, and the middle is as you point out. It's rather gray. There are there are. It really depends on so many circumstances. So maybe today we can sort through some of these circumstances. First thing on that would be: Can you speak to what are the uh, current current prescribed uh, doses of T- of THC? What what are those br- drug brand names, and what are they used for? How d- how do but, they help people? Well,
1: there there are you know the cannabis has three two of the THC and one CBD. So the for the THC it's dronabinol. And it's nebulone, which is used for, you know, dronabinol is used for, uh, wasting diseases as well as for nausea associated chemotherapy. Nebulone stimulates is used for, appetite. Yes, it does. Absolutely. For and somebody it, it's, Ill. it's been shown. Yes, correct. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and the nebulone. pain management. Pain management. Uh, you know, uh, as well, uh, the nebulone is also used for the same reason uh nausea with chemotherapy and the slightly different dosing strategies for this, but dranabinol you usually start with 2.5 milligrams uh twice a day for wasting diseases. For nausea, you would use about 2.5 milligrams one to three hours prior to the chemotherapy session. Right. And then you can you, you go up to five milligrams uh if necessary and the maximum is 10 milligrams right. that you would right. use. And it can be used three, four times. And it is, you know, usually it lasts about You know, four or five hours and the half-life usually is uh, of these is about 24 hours or so. Right. And for Nebulon, usually it's one milligram to two milligrams that you start with people and gradually go up two to three milligrams or so. Uh, and the same, same indications for that as well. Um, for this. And then we have the CBD. Oh, yes, go ahead. Yeah.
0: Well, so when, when, it is, uh, prepared by a pharmacy and it's a manufactured, uh, medicine, Obviously, it's not uh, being smoked, um, and so Correct. right. So the difference there, maybe uh, can you describe the difference because uh, in, in uh, obviously quality and knowing where the source is coming from, that's that's an important factor. One of the
1: one of the most yeah. important things that you have to understand is that when you're talking about particularly dronabinol and nabilon, we are talking about a very particular, just pure THC that we are discussing over here. That this mm-hmm. an analog of THC. Uh-huh.
0: When
1: you are, when you are using a plant, you are not using one particular component. You are, are there not, hundreds? How okay. many are there? There are there? as we know, there are four or five hundred, but we have been able wow. to so far recognize 140 phytocannabinoids. Out so we of don't those, even know
0: what half of them are know, that are being inhaled. Uh, and
1: out of those 120 we know of, 20 are practically unknown. And that's not the end of the story. Then we have the terpenes and terpenoids, which are in other things as well. a lot of plants and they give the sense of smell and taste to this. And Mm -hmm. then we have flavonoids as well. And think of it this way that you are using in Ronabinol or but in particular, just a THC component. So it has very, very, it's very pure and Mm it's that you know what it's going to do on Mm -hmm. that. It doesn't have any other impact on it. Now you are using something that does not one, but 140 different cannabinoids in it. And to make things more interesting, no two of these are the same, meaning that, you know, two different cultivars will have two different extracts, but completely different. So think of it, I may like to make an analogy that you and I are playing Scrabble. Mm -hmm. You have seven alphabets, I have seven alphabets. Of those seven alphabets, you can imagine how many words you can make in any different ratios. Think of it, the cannabis plant with hundreds of those alphabets in different concentration. It's like another analogy would be, you know, in the in one of the musical uh, uh, components is an equalizer, and you can move the bass and treble and anything, and it completely changes the sound quality. Think of it how those things can play around. And that is the problem in doing research because you are not allowed to do research because for gold standard purposes, you need to have a standardization. How do you do a standardization for regulatory purposes when this is it? So the impact, even if you're using it for nausea, for other things, you are having a n- numerous other effects in, because of those concentration. And that leads to other discussion we can have of the entourage effect. Well, and,
0: and that's an, an interesting point, because at least we can do research on what people are reporting in terms of their lifestyle, their, um, you know, adaptil- adaptability to adversity and that sort of thing. It's more subjective. But,
1: but, you know, that brings us back to the issue of science here, mm-hmm. because it's unfortunate, I think, that uh, one of the reasons that we have not been able to progress, you know, if you think about it. Uh, both THC and CBD, when they were found out, 19, one in 1940 and the 1960s, they were cloned. We have been sitting for 80 years with these two and we still don't know anything right. about it.
0: Largely because of the prohibition against because research. Because of
1: the prohibition, but also because the, the way the, at this point, the research is done in this country, there's one place, University of Mississippi, which is allowed to grow and say, okay, you know, wow. you can do study. Nobody else is allowed to do other than pure extracts for that reason. But in the real world, if you go, you're not going to find real extracts. You are going to find in a dispensary a plan in that way.
0: And it seems like we're, we're just behind time about needing to catch up on that.
1: And that's one of the major problems and limitations that we are struggling with at this time.
0: Right. Well, that makes a lot of sense. People have very strong feelings and beliefs about about the use or, or, or prohibition of these things and and emotions get involved. So, you know, as we're, as we're speaking about this yep. today, I, I, I think I want to kind of carve out this area where we can talk about it and say that, you know, um, there's a lot to learn about it. And yet we do, we do know certain things. And, and even though, uh, if we talk about the chemical nature of it and, and the particular science of it, there's a lot of questions to be answered. Um, Clinically, we do know that marijuana is not harmless. Would you agree? And would you would you be able to speak about a, whether it is in fact a contributor to a, a person going on to harder drugs? I know Steve Martin, the comedian, uh, writes about this. That he 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 did marijuana uh, a couple times. He had such a bad trip from it was psychotic. Was um, paranoid, panicked. Thought he was dying. And as a result, never did anything else in all of his, never did um, any other drugs, including marijuana. And he credits that to saving his life or his uh, his and saving him from the fate of his peers like John Belushi and many others who, who did in fact um, have other issues with drugs, other drugs. You know, number one, we need to
1: understand that it's a very complicated plant. There's no question about it. And And politics have sort of caused this issue where we are unable to really tease out the politics from science at, at at this point. So people tend to again look at it in sort of the very in a very tribal way. You know, it's the it's the road to you know eventually you're going to go down this path of just drug addiction, and that's the end of it for you. You know, or it's a panacea; it's the best thing after sliced. Yeah, this bread.
0: advocacy sort of gets mixed I, 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 into absolutely,
1: and 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 people have such strong opinions, viewing through these skewed lenses, that we are unable to really, and I'm not just blaming general public. I'm really talking about even clinicians today.
0: Medical community. Yeah. Absol- absolutely absolutely, yeah. medical
1: community. And that is because of being naive about these facts because it has been, as physicians, and I want to make this point before I go further. As physicians, we are taught that when we look at any particular thing, which is schedule one, we understand it has no medical utility and it has very high risk for addiction. That's how we no, view scheduling. No use on. at all. Yeah. No use at all. So if I'm not going to find a use for something, why should I waste my time researching, going down that path when I know I can't get anything out of
0: it? And you won't get money for that research, certainly. No.
1: No, none of us were taught the endocannabinoid system in the nineteen. It didn't come out until the nineteen nineties, really. But we are pre that. But it's thirty years, you know, uh, uh, old at this point. We still don't know, and it's still not being taught at this time. Okay, so we come with this mindset already, which is that it is going to go down this path. And one of the impetus for this book, to be honest, is I am one of those people who was as ignorant as anybody today else, and. When I started to go down this path, I started craving information, and I found there was no objective information, and that is why it led me to path of trying to obtain this information, and then saying, you know what, maybe I should educate other people as I have educated myself on 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 this, which led me down to understanding the utility and the harms about it. And I think when we talk about harms, and you were talking about you know MDMA and psilocybin, I think I'm uh, uh, not just Americans, the world over, we need to stop thinking of drugs in terms of good and bad. Okay. I think because just about all drugs can be put to use beneficially yeah. in some way and they can be abused heavily at the same time. Right. And cannabis is no exception at right. this point. And cannabis use disorder is real. There's no question about it. You know, people go through withdrawals. There was for a long time, this sort of uh, uh, idea that people in one camp, there's no psychological withdrawal. There's
0: no physical withdrawal.
1: Oh yes, there is see it every day in people who are struggling with it, and that's like, who are these people and then? Can you, you describe
0: yeah. it? what What are those effects of withdrawal?
1: Withdrawal, yeah, yes. So withdrawal, you know, both psychological, physical, one is the psychological basically is, you know, this sense of craving, you know, you're just searching for it all the time, no matter you are in some ways, neglecting your duties and things and it's interfering with your uh, responsibilities and everything on the physical level, irritability, agitation, lack of sleep, increased appetite, insomnia, uh, all of those things can happen to people and can last one or two weeks post uh, uh, after that and And most people
0: will probably not tolerate the withdrawal
1: that's the problem because I think uh, here's a gray area and, and this needs to be understood. Many times people will say, well, I'm, I, you know, if if I don't take it, I'm anxious and I, 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 I just feel uncomfortable. What they're not recognizing is that it's not the anxiety that they're taking it for. It's the withdrawal that's yes. the anxiety factor. Yeah. And they're just trying to treat their withdrawal. In, Similar in,
0: to in, a nicotine addiction. Somebody says, I have to smoke. Otherwise I'm going to be jittery or correct, I'm going to be, ab- you know, absolutely. Well, but, it's, be- it's the rebound effect happening. Right.
1: And, and, and these withdrawals, there are certain medicines that get sort of play a role in that way. And in fact, CBD has been shown in some substance use, including in cocaine and opioids, and even use in cannabis use disorder in some ways to delay. And one of the factors may be that we know some of its anti-anxiety effects. And we know that when you stop, even before there's any physical component, it may be the anxiety factor. So if you delay that anxiety factor, you may be able to mitigate the rest of it in, in, in some shape or form. And that's a very important point that people need to... Learn and not think of it as that there is no withdrawal, so it's all in my head, and so I can I can just keep using it every day, no matter what. But you know, every individual is different. Uh, How much they use, how frequently they use, how much the potency of how they use, all are going to play a role in the withdrawal. But withdrawals are not like a alcohol withdrawal. It's not like an like a like an opiate opiate withdrawal, which can be pretty dangerous when you stop. These withdrawals are sort of if you want to quantify it less severe than those withdrawals
0: they're disruptive and annoying yes. as opposed to medically urgent correct absolutely yes yeah correct yeah so how common do you think marijuana addiction is could would you be able to take a stab at that
1: yeah i mean you know i i, I don't want people to use these numbers as as you know coming you know as absolute absolute but if you look at a lot of data that's been there you know overall anywhere from nine to 10% or so versus people who have been using it for a long time, about 17, 18%. But there is a one meta analysis that was done um uh, recently and huge actually numbers more than I think 20,000 patients were in that. And they saw that about patients in the outpatient, about 57% of those people were experiencing withdrawal versus people who were the inpatient about more than 80% had withdrawal symptoms. So, you know, I, I mean I see people I work in an inner city population with severe persistent mentally ill people who have comorbid substance use with numerous things but it becomes tricky because most of the times people are not using one drug people are using Myriad. yeah that's, that's so, a many, whole other so story. many other right. and that clouds the picture in, in 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 many ways but I would say on an average about you know you can say 15 16 percent or so you know would would experience it's a significant number yeah. when you consider Correct. the amount of Ab- users um, Abs- absolutely.
0: And, and, um, you know, generally speaking, so the, the, the intoxication, so to speak, and, and the, the effects, um, and by the way, I think I want to say, at least from, from my perspective, you can certainly share your perspective, but clinically, we would say it is, it is considered a problem, whether or not you want to call it an addiction, but there are, in the DSM-5, there are, there is language to, to include some of this, uh, discussion about. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. Right. I mean, you know, you, cannabis use disorder is practically addiction, but what, what does addiction yeah. really mean? Addiction is a general way of saying that you continue to use something despite negative consequences. Right. It's so, interrupting, <laughs> interfering <laughs> with your life. Absolutely. If you look at the criteria of cannabis use disorder, which are 11 from mild, moderate, severe for mild, you need two, three symptoms for moderate, four, five, and for severe six, right. seven or more. They go from all of the physical ones to saying that, looking for, you know, despite the consequences, you continue to go down this path. You are searching for your neglecting relationships, your professional duties, all of this. So it's more or less, yes, it's the same
0: terminology. It's well, and I think people want, to, people don't want to hear that it's addictive. Um, people, I, I, at least in my experience, people are saying there's no way it can be ad- addictive. And even your colleague, Dr. Hill describes in his book how, uh, what a relief it is for people to hear when they're struggling with, uh, with severe anxiety that's, that's, <laughs> um, that's increasingly disruptive in their life. And finally, somebody's to say to them, well, you know, smoking this is, is, is temporarily relieving the anxiety, but it is over time potentially making it much worse and in, in, in possibly leading to a depression. So they can be relieved to hear that, oh, okay, I, maybe and there is a way through this to reduce this and then actually deal with what's making me anxious.
1: You know, the road to what you're describing, it's to me sort of the, is the goal, it's the end result, but you have to go down that path. We cannot go down that path if we are not educated as clinicians. You know, right. what does the word doctor mean? Doctor means comes from a Latin term, docia. What does that mean? To teach, to educate. Our job is not to give just pills.
0: Have, have doctors lost that title, do you
1: think? I, I think it, it, particularly we have, and a lot has to do with, you know, uh, overall how the medical establishment and the way we are driven and we are asked to conduct ourselves and perform duties in today's managed care and other things where we really don't have time for many clinicians. I I don't put myself in there because I treat people in a very different way where I have time to do that. But I take it as a very serious responsibility that if I'm not educated, I can't educate. And there was a study out of Vermont showing that only one in five patients could say that their clinician was adequately knowledgeable in terms of discussing with them the pros and cons of cannabis. You cannot, you know, most of the clinicians don't realize when they're discussing the cannabis issue, train has left the station. You are not going to tell people today to say, don't, use cannabis, but the patient needs to have that belief in you that you are not scolding them.
0: Well, that it's safe to discuss this with you. Let's talk about particularly young people, because I (laughs) feel my, my, especially my heart is with young people who, um, you know, you mentioned clinicians who may not necessarily know better or just may not be informed. And so they just try to kind of avoid the issue or just say, don't do it or look the other way. Um, we can't really look the other way anymore. And as parents either. And, um, you know, I think some parents are, are relieved perhaps that, you know, their child may not be involved in drinking. <laughs> um, there, are very different drugs, alcohol and THC. But, um, why specifically? I mean, we should be concerned when any adole- any adolescent is using drugs. Um, recreationally, quote unquote, I think we have to be very careful to say that for an adolescent uh, in the developing mind, well into the twenties even, but what is the problems? Can you, can you highlight that risk for adolescents? Please take the time now to subscribe to the soul of life, wherever you're listening, give it a thumbs up or write a positive review. That's the best way to make sure you don't miss out on these amazing episodes planned for season two.
1: Sure. Absolutely. There's you know, there's a reason number one that all the creational use when it's a when in the United States in all different states, um, it very specifically says adult use. It doesn't say use, there's a yeah. very specific terminology there, adult right. use. And right. the reason for that is that um let me make an analogy in in, in some ways. As a clinician who uses psychotropic medicines there are numerous times where a pregnant woman comes to me who needs treatment for that reason. And you have to discuss the risk and the benefits. And most of the times, the risks that we discuss are in the first trimester of the pregnancy, Mm -hmm. when the things are developing. After the first trimester, more or less, the organs are formed. And after that, they're only going to get bigger. So any risk of any malformations is after the third month is very rare. It's in the first three months of that time frame that you are trying to hold back the medicines, if you can. And you say, you know what? This is not the time to do that. Now carry that over from birth to age 25. That's how long it takes for the brain to fully develop, for that pruning to take place, all the, the synaptic connections. to The
0: structure being built.
1: Absolutely, structure being built at that time. So THC in particular, can go and impact and disrupt that pruning process and particularly impact the prefrontal cortex. Prefrontal cortex is like what I call is the hard drive of our brains in some ways. Executive functioning, uh, impulse control, decision-making, mood regulation, All of the things that are important for social cognition, how you navigate in the world, your learning, all of these things, they are happening in that. So if you try to disrupt that, more or less, cognition also, one of the most important things, can be impacted. And unfortunately, it's not uncommon that if you are using it heavily, you are going to have the problem. And I don't want people to think that, you know, you're going to take one puff of THC and you're going to lose 10 IQ points. No, that's not the point. We are really talking about a consistent, regular, regular use of you know uh, cannabis with high THC, um, and. That the, Those are some of the biological aspects but from the cognitive aspect of how the brain functioning is. What is more but important...
0: So there is literally a, a loss of IQ. That's documented. That's well, not just it, 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 conjecture. Yes,
1: you know, there is. if you look at the data, to be honest, you will see on both ends. There is data that suggests, yes, there is IQ points that are, even if you stop, you don't lose, but you don't regain, you don't which gain. is detrimental, yeah. in fact, yeah. in some ways to think about it. But then mm. they bring other facets and aspects into what other things may be playing a role when they start factoring in genetics and age and gender and culture and education and uh, all of the social uh, it becomes a little bit more muddy in terms of how much it mm. you are really losing that's 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 the issue and i think we won't know because a um, lot of this is being done by thc versus taking these plants and really using those to really study these that's the difference uh, sometimes as i said to you the entourage effect and all of these other things. Second, more importantly, um, is the adolescence prior to age of 25. 25 is sort of the cutoff mark that we think of uh, until which point, in my opinion, honestly, stay away from it. Don't use it. That's how I would say it very, very clearly. Family histories of uh, predisposition to some psychotic disorders, schizophrenia, schizoaffective, as well as bipolar conditions in this way, we have seen that use of THC, particularly high potency THC, can trigger not only an acute psychotic episode, but in fact go down the path of having a chronic psychotic disorder. In fact, there is some data to suggest that people who have done it 25%, which is a huge Mm. percentage of people will end up developing a chronic psychotic condition with this. Um, My my suggestion, and and this is, I see it. I've seen it so many times. Parents don't want to hear you on this. You know, I, I have, I have people who have come in as a college student. he, is in college, is in the second, third year, or approaching the final year, which is the prime years. They are doing well, and now they're in school, and they start smoking at that time heavily, and mm-hmm. uh, and then suddenly, they their grades are falling. They are isolated. They are sort of having bizarre conversations or bizarre attitude. The concern is something that's gone wrong or whatever mm. they, they bring to your attention. And you have this conversation with them that, okay, based on the symptomatology at this point, I'm going to start them on an antipsychotic medicine. And mm. then the question becomes, well, are you going to give this forever? And the question really is, and I've seen it over years, which is, well, to be honest, at this stage, the way what I've seen, yes, because this person, if you stop them, will probably again have these symptoms again. They're going It'll to come back. To, yeah. To come back. You may be able to have a good life, be able to pass college, have a degree, you know, have a relationship this, but in terms of your peers, you may never be able to have the same level of functioning as the peer. It's a heartbreaking thing.
0: And you never want to end up in that conversation. <laughs> no, you don't. With, and, no, and, as because a parent many, or as a doctor.
1: Sometimes parents leave and say, you are wrong. And then you hear back from them six months later. Oh, I'm sorry to say, but he he has a psychotic episode. Again, he, he wasn't taking, it's gotten worse. What you're bringing up is, I think, such an important point. And I want, I can't emphasize enough that all of this legalization that we discuss about, about and some of the complications and clinicians need to know this, that at the heart of it, if you need to do all of it is education, education. We have done a great job with smoking, for example. We've yes. done a great job with opioids. And more recently, we've done all
0: of this. And even alcohol. We, we're prepared to tell teenagers about the consequences of drinking, driving, impairment, why, addiction. Why can't
1: we do the same with education about this and take it on a broad scale that we can do this?
0: Right. We need to do it. We absolutely yeah. need to. It's much easier to do it upstream than downstream. Correct. Um, and, you know, I'll just... Point out because maybe because I'm a social worker, but also because because I work in creative modalities and and study the brain's plasticity. Something as you, you would be very well familiar <laughs> yeah. with that we're finding out more and more that even in uh, things like psychosis, of course, very case specific and hard to, to to say this generally, but there can be ways to challenge the mind to adapt and grow even when there is quote unquote org- organic brain damage or loss of function. There can be ways, very intensive therapies, of course, correct. Um, correct. But the brain can learn. Um, it's much, much easier to just not do it. We're not saying mm-hmm. just say, no, it's not that easy. But I think it's about saying yes to um, uh, understanding the whole picture.
1: You know, one needs to understand an adolescent walks in who has irritable bowel syndrome, has a seizure disorder, is not getting well on the standardized treatment at that time. Well, you know what? yeah, you maybe you can have a conversation about the use of cannabis in such a patient where everything else is failing and obviously they are not doing well and you have to look at the risk and mitigate those and think about the family history, look out, watch for other drug use and other things. And yes, so it's never black and white. You know, there is always that fine line of balancing, but you really need to know the harm reduction and have a proper conversation with the person and know what their
0: options are. Right. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to come across as, uh, you know, totally against uh, any sort of allowance of this. I mean, people, you know, drinking in moderation is well known to be a, an acceptable part of, uh, of uh, medical advice. Um, and so I imagine this could also be included at some point. Um, however, it just, it feels as though it, it's so laden with uh, people are going to, Put you in? Oh, he's he's totally against. And, and as clinicians, it's probably I don't think we can avoid that. We are we are trying to reduce harm mm-hmm. in our patients. We are trying to prevent harm and wish that they would. There could be ways educationally upstream to to prevent them having to come into our office. But here they are. Um, and just another point here um, that your colleague Dr. Hill makes that the the potency of marijuana is not what it was in the 60s. People, famous people, uh, uh, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, other celebrities have talked about have touted it, and um, and of course now we're probably going to begin seeing the very, very powerful and wealthy uh, tobacco companies marketing and trying to convince people that they ought to give it a try. That's sort of chilling to me um, to imagine having, uh, having that influence, but it's not the same as it was when you were in the 60s.
1: No, absolutely not, because if you go back to 1965, 78, 97, 2014, these are the different markers. Four, eight, 12 and now 16 to 20 percent. That's the THC ratio that has gone up. And the most staggering number is the ratio of THC to C B D. Okay. In nineteen in nineteen seventy-eight or seventy-five, the ratio of THC to C B D one was twenty five to one.
0: Now eighty to one, eight zero to 80 one. Eighty to one. Eighty to one. Okay. And that's gonna take you straight to the moon. Correct. You you know,
1: particularly what is called as the dab, dabbing or the shatter or the glass, which is this very concentrated form and you heat it and you put it on the glass and then you use the fumes. 90% THC, 90%. And people need to realize and recognize that, you know, somebody who is in their 70s now you know, and they used it in their twenties and thirties, somewhere they smoked and they were this. And today somebody says you have this condition or this, and you just smoke. They need to realize go slow and go no oh It yeah. is a completely different ball game at, at this stage. So that is yeah. why we are even more have to be careful with particularly adolescents and other people with psychotic predisposed yeah. physicians over yeah. here, because the risk with today's, THC is so high. It is so far more important that Kevin's right. point that completely two different drugs is absolutely right in that right, way.
0: Right, yeah. I, I, for many years, uh, Dr. Maud, I, Bicycle to work uh, more than a dozen miles. It was part, I loved it. I loved bicycling. Yeah. I gave it up after a few close calls for two reasons. One was because I was seeing people on their, you know, holding cell phones yeah. or with their eyes down yeah. as I'm, as I'm negotiating, right? <laughs> but the other reason is because of people being baked out in their cars and I'm riding behind them and you can smell it. Mm-hmm. And, right. um, I, yeah. so I, t- I, I quit cold turkey. Uh, bicycling and now state of the stationary cycle, but um, you know, so I guess I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder about that. I don't, I don't <laughs> want to come across as 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 uh, harshing everybody, but you know, it, the, the fact is there are there. I want to talk about sobriety and road testing because mm-hmm. that's something states it seems like are struggling with. I think Colorado just introduced mm-hmm. a, a a obligatory blood test for at the scene of a crime if somebody's right. arrested. Yep. Um, and there's a suspicion that they're high. They'll get a blood test. It's mm-hmm. not. What are the differences here? Why is it harder for a, an impaired, uh, a driver impaired with THC to actually know that they're impaired?
1: Number one, um, there is something called error of omission and error of commission. in alcohol is error of omission. You go through a red light, you know, and you don't even know what you are doing. When people are high on THC, they think they're extra careful. They'll be going in a 55 mile per hour zone at 25 mile per hour speed at that mm-hmm. point. They will be stopping at green lights. Mm-hmm. It's an error of commission in, rather than omission in, in mm-hmm. that way. They're, so, and they think, but if you think about what the brain I was talking about, which is the prefrontal cortex and overall how it impacts the brain, you know, some of the things that it impacts is your memory, perception, coordination, reaction time, perception of time. All of these things. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are impaired when you are high in in that. And that is why the crash and all of these things can happen when you are high. So one needs to take that very seriously into account. And the problem is with alcohol, it's very easy to establish a BL of 0.8 and say, you have a BL of 0.8, you are an impaired driver. Can't do that cannabis number one is the problem is you know it's it's not like as everybody was using a capsule of dronabinol 2.5 milligrams and yeah. you could measure it there yeah. is no standardization of that number
0: one alcohol uh, is alcohol no matter where uh, it's, no how it's consumed. And,
1: and the number two people know many times that you can metabolize on based on their one hour their two drinks and they'll wait to two drinks after an hour and they'll say okay i'm ready to go in 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 that way most of the time, it's what we were just talking about because each cultivar has such a different. You are sitting at a friend's place, you are smoking or doing, you have no clue how it's going to impact you for how long it's going to impact you. What is the ratio of indica to sativa? Am I brain high? Am I body high? What are the terpenes going to play a role? How am I going to feel? Is com- Number three, smoking, inhaling, eating. Completely different ball game in terms of how it's going to impact and how long it's going to last and have an impact on you as well in this. But it's easy to say, you know, six to eight hours after using it, you shouldn't be driving because that's how long it takes. It's a longer time. Absolutely. It it, it takes that much time. And that is very important. And and the the last thing is that because it lasts so long in your system, if you are stopped, for example, and you didn't smoke for a, you know, uh, let's say a week, maybe, absolutely right, for a week, and it shows up, it doesn't mean that you're intoxicated because it primarily is stored in the adipose tissue uh, in there and fatty and, tissue, and fatty tissue. Absolutely. And then it's released from there back into the bloodstream. So it goes from the bloodstream into highly perfused tissue. And then it's redistributed
0: from there back into the bloodstream. I also want to offer and end on this note. Um, that there is hope for people who want to change this and who are concerned about their use or the, the use of a loved one. Um, and you know it's 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 not a once and done it's not a life sentence to be uh using uh cannabis too much it's possible to make changes thank you so much dr samoon ahmed uh your book is called medical marijuana a clinical handbook is there a place that you'd like to refer people to as far as finding more information about yeah. marijuana cannabistextbook.com which is the website for the book
1: and in fact people need to realize that this website is updated every few weeks so that we are not waiting for the next edition of the book. But as state rules, regulations, renew, research comes on, we immediately put it on the website, com, So people are apprised of the latest research, clinicians know the latest rules, regulations, all the information, and they can get the book there as well.
0: Great. It sounds like a must-have for all clinicians and uh, and anyone interested in this important subject. If you care about people who are using marijuana or thinking about it, it's something to definitely get clear on the science. Dr. Samoon Ahmad, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. I had a great conversation.
0: Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, Really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you.
1: I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum.
0: All right, I will go.